It's the 11th of June in the year of our salvation, 2009, and you're back with Father Z and another podcast. We welcome as our guest today, Pope Leo XIII, who died in 1903. He was born Vincenzo Gioacchino Raffaele Luigi Pecci, and he was the 257th successor of Peter. Today we will drill into one of his encyclicals in order to help us benefit better from the upcoming Year for Priests, which is going to begin on the 19th of June. Now, as we approach the beginning of this holy year for priests, which Pope Benedict XVI has called for, a year which is going to begin on the Feast of the Sacred Heart in 2009, and also uh, in observance of the centenary of St. John Vianney, uh, we should, from time to time in these podcasts, go diving into some texts which can deepen our devotion and help us participate in such an important event for the life of the church in a in a better and deeper way. Pope Benedict is trying to help us in his pontificate, trying to help us revitalize our Catholic identity. And so it's a very good idea to see the continuity of what we are doing now or what we can do today with the efforts of our forefathers. And that will involve, of course, digging into their texts. So today, let us hear an encyclical letter of Leo XIII. This letter is called Annum Sacrum, Holy Year, and it concerns a holy year for the city of Rome, but also Pope Leo's project for the sanctification of the whole church everywhere in solidarity through the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Now, as we dig into this encyclical, there are a few things you might want to listen for. Now, first of all, uh, note how the Pope speaks about the Lordship of Christ over all nations and over all peoples, whether they are Catholic or whether they are Christian but not Catholic or whether they are not Christian. And he speaks very clearly about the Lord's Lordship, his kingship, and sovereignty over states, over nations. And he deplores the separation of church from state to the point that efforts are made to drive God completely out of public view. And he proposes devotion to the Sacred Heart as a remedy for God being driven out of the public square. Well, if there is ever a concern uh, for devout Catholics today, and indeed all people of of goodwill. It is uh, our present day banishing of God from the public square. We all know about the controversies that come up every Christmas time, right? But then uh, there are other times too, when we see uh, real hostility now growing, I think, on the part of some states against the Christian faith, at least. And the Catholic faith, the Catholic expression of Christianity in particular. Uh, 
This is a growing concern for us, but it was also a growing concern for Pope Leo XIII back in his day at the end of the 19th century. So perhaps the wisdom from our forebears can help us understand what to do today, although I think that perhaps today the attacks may be more serious. Uh, anyway, uh, I think perhaps also we are a little bit less used to hearing about Christ being sovereign over all nations. At least we are less likely to hear that kind of language in our language of worship. Because when you compare the texts for the Mass formulary of the Feast of Christ the King, as it was before the Council, with those after the Council, you can see some pretty big differences. And... Well, the way that we pray also has a, a reciprocal relationship with what we believe. But I'm digressing. Anyway, listen to how the Pope talks about the sovereignty of the Lord and about what's happening in the public square. Listen also to how, uh, especially toward the end, how he speaks so very personally. The Pope is giving public witness to the whole church, and he refers to an illness that he had that was cured. And he is expressing his own gratitude uh, through this encyclical letter to the whole church. And he's calling upon uh, the whole church to make a public act of gratitude for his own healing. You see the solidarity there uh, between uh, what the, the, how the Pope feels for the great graces that were given to him and the possibilities of benefit for the whole church. I'm reminded of when Pope John Paul II had recovered from his gunshot wound, how he then made very public uh, expressions of gratitude for the healing that he felt uh, and the preservation uh, of his life that he felt uh, was uh, given to him through the intercession of Mary. Well, uh, this Pope is, uh, is focused on the Sacred Heart in this particular letter. But another thing here, too, perhaps to think about, it's just occurred to me to bring this up, that, you know, today we see instantly the sounds and images of Popes from across the globe. Well, in the time, in the time Leo XIII was writing, People had to gather from the Pope, had to read his mind, hear what he had to say through letters and the sculpted word, the carefully crafted word. So these encyclicals were very short compared to the very long ones that we have today. And they were very much to the point. And they were very evocative in a lot of ways. But back then, when people had many, many fewer distractions and fewer rapid tools of social communication. Perhaps these short encyclicals, so carefully sculpted, uh, with, with limited points that they want to get across, and with you know, really well-chosen words, perhaps they had a power to command greater unity in the Catholic people in their imaginations and in their aspirations. Perhaps we're lacking something today because of the ease of communication. Well, that doesn't mean that we necessarily have to stop using the tools of communication. I'd say on the contrary, but we have to begin using them maybe in a little different way. 
Anyway, uh, Pope Leo did not sense himself to be uh, isolated in his uh, gratitude for the curing of this disease. And in his gratitude, he wishes to share his joy and his faith with the entire world, and he uses an encyclical to do so. Also, you are going to hear him speak of a consecration of the whole human race to the Sacred Heart. Now, many young people may not know this act of consecration, but I bet a lot of older, senior and seasoned Catholics do. It was prayed often and prayed in public, I think in very many parishes, for many decades uh, after, you know, since the time that Leo implemented this. And so this act of consecration is going to ring clearly with a style of another age. It is going to sound very politically incorrect to the ears of many people as they listen. But nevertheless, the meaning and the sense of the prayer, even if it sounds very politically correct, is still a wonderful and valuable and healthy sentiment for Catholics to express because we pray that other people may find the joy which we find in our Catholic faith, in, in our submission to Christ as the King and the Sovereign, the Lord of our hearts. It's not a hostile act to pray for people and to wish them the joy that we also feel. So without further introduction, let's turn to Leo the Third own words in the encyclical Annum Sacrum, dated 1899, in the 22nd year of his very long pontificate. Annum Sacrum, encyclical of Pope Leo XIII on consecration to the Sacred Heart. To the patriarchs, primates, archbishops, and bishops of the Catholic world, in grace and communion with the Apostolic See, venerable brethren, health and apostolic benediction. But a short time ago, as you well know, we, by letters apostolic, and following the custom and ordinances of our predecessors, commanded the celebration in this city, at no distant date, of a holy year. And now, today, in the hope, and with the object that this religious celebration shall be more devoutly performed, we have traced and recommended a striking design, from which, if all shall follow it out with hearty good will, we not unreasonably expect extraordinary and lasting benefits for Christendom in the first place, and also for the whole human race. Already more than once we have endeavored, after the example of our predecessors, Innocent the Twelfth, Benedict the Thirteenth, Clement the Thirteenth, Pius the Sixth, and Pius the Ninth, 
devoutly to foster and bring out into fuller light that most excellent form of devotion which has for its object the veneration of the sacred heart of Jesus. This we did especially by the decree given on June 28, 1889, by which we raised the feast under that name to the dignity of the first class. But now we have in mind a more signal form of devotion, which shall be, in a manner, the crowning perfection of all the honors that peoples have been accustomed to pay to the Sacred Heart, and which we confidently trust will be most pleasing to Jesus Christ our Redeemer. This is not the first time, however, that the design of which we speak has been mooted. Twenty-five years ago, on the approach of the solemnities of the second centenary of the blessed Margaret Mary Alacock's reception of the divine command to propagate the worship of the Sacred Heart, many letters from all parts, not merely from private persons, but from bishops also, were sent to Pius IX, begging that he would consent to consecrate the whole human race to the most sacred heart of Jesus. It was thought best at the time to postpone the matter, in order that a well-considered decision might be arrived at. Meanwhile, permission was granted to individual cities which desired it thus to consecrate themselves, and a form of consecration was drawn up. Now, for certain new and additional reasons, we consider that the plan is ripe for fulfillment. This world-wide and solemn testimony of allegiance and piety is especially appropriate to Jesus Christ, who is the head and supreme Lord of the race. His empire extends not only over Catholic nations, and those who, having been duly washed in the waters of holy baptism, belong of right to the church, although erroneous opinions keep them astray, or dissent from her teaching cuts them off from her care. It comprises also all those who are deprived of the Christian faith, so that the whole human race is most truly under the power of Jesus Christ. For he who is the only begotten Son of God the Father, having the same substance with him and being the brightness of his glory, and the figure of his substance, Hebrews 1, 3, necessarily has everything in common with the Father, and therefore sovereign power over all things. This is why the Son of God speaks of himself through the prophet, But I am appointed king by him over Zion, his holy mountain. The Lord said to me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the Gentiles for thy inheritance, and the utmost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 2 by these words he declares that he has the power from God over the whole church, which is signified by Mount Zion, and also over the rest of the world to its utmost ends. On what foundation the sovereign power rests is made sufficiently plain by the words, Thou art my Son. For by the very fact that he is the Son of the King of all, he is also the heir of all his Father's power. Hence the words, I will give thee the Gentiles for thy inheritance, which are similar to those used by Paul the Apostle, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 2. 
But we should now give most special consideration to the declarations made by Jesus Christ, not through the apostles or the prophets, but by his own words. To the Roman governor who asked him, Art thou a king then? He answered unhesitatingly, Thou sayest that I am a king. John 28, 37 and the greatness of this power and the boundlessness of his kingdom is still more clearly declared in these words to the apostles, All power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. If then all power has been given to Christ, it follows of necessity that his empire must be supreme, absolute, and independent of the will of any other so that none is either equal or like unto it. And since it has been given in heaven and on earth, it ought to have heaven and earth obedient to it. And verily he has acted on this extraordinary and peculiar right when he commanded his apostles to preach his doctrine over the earth, to gather all men together into one body of the church by the baptism of salvation and to bind them by laws, which no one could reject without risking his eternal salvation. But this is not all. Christ reigns, nor only by natural right as the Son of God, but also by a right that he has acquired. For he it was who snatched us from the power of darkness, Colossians 1.13, and gave himself for the redemption of all, 1 Timothy 2, 6. Therefore, not only Catholics and those who have duly received Christian baptism, but also all men, individually and collectively, have become to him a purchased people. 1 Peter 2, 9. St. Augustine's words are therefore to the point when he says, You ask what price he paid? See what he gave, and you will understand how much he paid. The price was the blood of Christ. What could cost so much but the whole world and all its people? The great price he paid was paid for all. Commentary 120 on St. John How comes it about that infidels themselves are subject to the power and dominion of Jesus Christ is clearly shown by St. Thomas, who gives us the reason and its explanation. For having put the question whether his judicial power extends to all men, and having stated that judicial authority flows naturally from royal authority, he concludes decisively as follows. All things are subject to Christ as far as his power is concerned, although they are not all subject to him in the exercise of that power. The third part, question 59, article 4. This sovereign power of Christ over men is exercised by truth, justice, and above all by charity. To this twofold ground of his power and domination, he graciously allows us, if we think fit, to add voluntary consecration. Jesus Christ, our God and our Redeemer, is rich in the fullest and perfect possession of all things. We, on the other hand, are so poor and needy that we have nothing of our own to offer him as a gift. But yet, in his infinite goodness and love, he in no way objects to our giving and consecrating to him what is already his, 
as if it were really our own. Nay, far from refusing such an offering, he positively desires it and asks for it. My son, give me thy heart. We are, therefore, able to be pleasing to him by the good will and the affection of our soul. For by consecrating ourselves to him, we not only declare our open and free acknowledgement and accept of his authority over us, but we also testify that if what we offer as a gift were really our own, we would still offer it with our whole heart. We also beg of him that he would vouchsafe to receive it from us, though clearly his own. Such is the efficacy of the act of which we speak. Such is the meaning underlying our words. And since there is in the Sacred Heart a symbol and a sensible image of the infinite love of Jesus Christ, which moves us to love one another, therefore it is fit and proper that we should consecrate ourselves to his most sacred heart, an act which is nothing else than an offering and a binding of oneself to Jesus Christ, seeing that whatever honor, veneration, and love is given to this divine heart is really and truly given to Christ himself. For these reasons we urge and exhort all who know and love this divine heart willingly to undertake this act of piety. And it is our earnest desire that all should make it on the same day, so that the aspirations of so many thousands who are performing this act of consecration may be borne to the temple of heaven on the same day. But shall we allow to slip from our remembrance those innumerable others upon whom the light of Christian truth has not yet shined? We hold the place of him who came to save that which was lost, and who shed his blood for the salvation of the whole human race, and so we greatly desire to bring to the true life those who sit in the shadow of death. As we have already sent messengers of Christ over the earth to instruct them, so now, in pity for their lot with all our soul, we commend them, and as far as in us lies, we consecrate them to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. In this way, this act of devotion which we recommend will be a blessing to all, for having performed it, those in whose hearts are the knowledge and the love of Jesus Christ, will feel that faith and love increased. Those who, knowing Christ, yet neglect his law and its precepts, may still gain from his sacred heart the flame of charity. And lastly, for those still more unfortunate, who are struggling in the darkness of superstition, we shall all with one mind implore the assistance of heaven, that Jesus Christ, to whose power they are subject, may also one day render them submissive to its exercise, and that not only in the life to come, when he will fulfill his will upon all men, by saving some and punishing others, but also in this mortal life by giving them faith and holiness. May they by these virtues strive to honor God as they ought, and to win everlasting happiness in heaven. Such an act of consecration, since it can establish or draw tighter the bonds which naturally connect public affairs with God, gives to states a hope of better things. In these latter times especially, a policy has been followed which has resulted in a sort of wall being raised between the church and 
civil society. In the constitution and administration of states, the authority of sacred and divine law is utterly disregarded, with a view to the exclusion of religion from having any constant part in public life. This policy almost tends to the removal of the Christian faith from our midst, and, if that were possible, of the banishment of God himself from the earth. When men's minds are raised to such a height of insolent pride, what wonder is it that the greater part of the human race should have fallen to such disquiet of mind and be buffeted by waves so rough that no one is suffered to be free from anxiety and peril? When religion is once discarded, it follows of necessity that the surest foundations of the public welfare must give way whilst God, to inflict on his enemies the punishment so they so richly deserve, has left them the prey of their own evil desires, so that they give themselves up to their passions, and finally wear themselves out by excess of liberty. Hence that abundance of evils which have now for a long time settled upon the world, and which pressingly call upon us to seek for help from him by whose strength alone they can be driven away. Who can he be but Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God? For there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 We must have recourse to him who is the way, the truth, and the life. We have gone astray, and we must return to the right path. Darkness has overshadowed our minds, and the gloom must be dispelled by the light of truth. Death has seized upon us, and we must lay hold of life. It will at length be possible that our many wounds be healed, and all justice spring forth again with the hope of restored authority, that the splendors of peace be renewed, and swords and arms drop from the hand, when all men shall acknowledge the empire of Christ, and willingly obey his word, and every tongue shall confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2.2 2. When the church, in the days immediately succeeding her institution, was oppressed beneath the yoke of the Caesars, a young emperor saw in the heavens a cross, which became at once the happy omen and cause of the glorious victory that soon followed. And now, today, behold, another blessed and heavenly token is offered to our sight, the most sacred heart of Jesus, with a cross rising from it and shining forth with dazzling splendor amidst flames of love. In that sacred heart, all our hopes should be placed, and from it the salvation of men is to be confidently besought. Finally, there is one motive which we are unwilling to pass over in silence, personal to ourselves, it is true, but still good and weighty, which moves us to undertake this celebration. God, the author of every good, not long ago preserved our life by curing us of a dangerous disease. We now wish, by this increase of the honor paid to the Sacred Heart, that the memory of this great mercy should be brought prominently forward, and our gratitude 
be publicly acknowledged. For these reasons, we ordain that on the ninth, tenth, and eleventh of the coming month of June, in the principal church of every town and village, certain prayers be said, and on each of these days there be added to the other prayers the litany of the Sacred Heart, approved by our authority. On the last day, the form of consecration shall be recited, which, venerable brethren, we sent you with these letters. As a pledge of divine benefits, and in token of our paternal benevolence to you, and to the clergy and people committed to your care, we lovingly grant in the Lord the apostolic benediction. Given at Rome at St. Peter's on the 25th day of May, 1899, the 22nd year of our pontificate. That was Pope Leo XIII in his magnificent encyclical Anum Sacrum of 1899, in which the Pope calls for devotion and a great consecration of the whole human race to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the sole sovereign and Lord of every heart and every nation on earth. And just as Pope Leo called for acts of reparation to the Sacred Heart in his time, so too, today, we should in our own lives make acts of reparation for our own sins, of course, but also all of those sins and the people which, who are tearing apart the bonds of society and endangering countless souls. Let us hear now two beautiful prayers that people very often recited once upon a time. One, the first, a consecration of the human race to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. This was a prayer that was read annually on the Feast of Christ the King, which in the old preconciliar calendar always fell on the last Sunday of October. There's no reason why this prayer can't be used now. Also, uh, immediately following, is an act of reparation to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which Pius XI, once upon a time, uh, or asked people to recite every year on the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Of course, it's, these are both prayers which we can pray all the time and to great advantage. Consecration of the Human Race to the Sacred Heart of Jesus Most sweet Jesus, Redeemer of the human race, look down upon us humbly prostrate before thy altar. We are thine, and thine we wish to be. 
but to be more surely united with thee, behold, each one of us freely consecrates himself to-day to thy most sacred heart. Many indeed have never known thee. Many too, despising thy precepts, have rejected thee. Have mercy on them all, most merciful Jesus, and draw them to thy sacred heart. Be thou king, O Lord, not only of the faithful who have never forsaken thee, but also of the prodigal children who have abandoned thee. Grant that they may quickly return to their father's house, lest they die of wretchedness and hunger. Be thou king of those who are deceived by erroneous opinions, or whom discord keeps aloof, and call them back to the harbor of truth and the unity of faith, so that soon there may be but one flock and one shepherd. Be thou king of all those who are still involved in the darkness of idolatry or of Islamism, and refuse not to draw them all into the light and kingdom of God. Turn thine eyes of mercy toward the children of that race once thy chosen people. Of old they called down upon themselves the blood of the Saviour. May it now descend upon them a laver of redemption and of life. Grant, O Lord, to thy church assurance of freedom and immunity from harm. Give peace and order to all nations, and make the earth resound from pole to pole with one cry. Praise to the divine heart that wrought our salvation. To it be glory and honor forever. Amen. Act of Reparation to the Sacred Heart of Jesus O sweet Jesus, whose overflowing charity for men is requited by so much forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt, behold us prostrate before thine altar, eager to repair by a special act of homage the cruel indifference and injuries to which thy loving heart is everywhere subject. Mindful, alas, that we ourselves have had a share in such great indignities, which we now deplore from the depths of our hearts, we humbly ask thy pardon, and declare our readiness to atone by voluntary expiation, not only for our own personal offenses, but also for the sins of those who, straying far from the path of salvation, refuse in their obstinate infidelity to follow thee, their shepherd and leader, or, renouncing the vows of their baptism, have cast off the sweet yoke of thy law." We are now resolved to expiate each and every deplorable outrage committed against thee. We are determined to make amends for the manifold offenses against Christian modesty in unbecoming dress and behavior, for all the foul seductions laid to ensnare the feet of the innocent, for the frequent violation of Sundays and holy days, and the shocking blasphemies uttered against thee and thy saints. We wish also to make amends for the insults to which thy vicar on earth and thy priests are subjected, for the profanation by conscious neglect or terrible acts of sacrilege of the very sacrament of thy divine love, and lastly, for the public crimes of nations who resist the rights and teaching authority of the Church 
which thou hast founded. Would, O divine Jesus, we were able to wash away such abominations with our blood. We now offer, in reparation for these violations of thy divine honor, the satisfaction thou didst once make to thine eternal Father on the cross, and which thou dost continue to renew daily on our altars. We offer it in union with the acts of atonement of thy Virgin Mother, and all the saints, and of the pious faithful on earth. And we sincerely promise to make recompense, as far as we can with the help of thy grace, for all neglect of thy great love, and for the sins which we and others have committed in the past. Henceforth, we will live a life of unwavering faith, a purity of conduct, of perfect observance of the precepts of the gospel, and especially that of charity. We promise, to the best of our power, to prevent others from avenging thee, and to bring as many as possible to follow thee. O loving Jesus, through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, our model in reparation, deign to receive the voluntary offering we make of this act of expiation, and by the crowning gift of perseverance, keep us faithful unto death in our duty and the allegiance which we owe to thee, so that we may all one day come to that happy home where thou with the Father and the Holy Ghost livest and reignest God, world without end. Amen. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. Please come and visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? And if you want an easier way to find us and tell your friends, you can look for Father Z using Google or go to fatherzonline.com, F-E-T-H-E-R-Z-Online.com. Please pray for me as I will for you. 